The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 97 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Hard to believe we have made it to 97 episodes. With episode number 100 coming up, we actually want to do something kind of fun. We're going to do a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and kind of talk through the history of how it came together, some of our favorite moments, and a little bit of a retrospective. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've actually had this request from several of our listeners and we want you to participate. So if you have a favorite guest, a favorite moment, something that stood out to you, uh, something that you found funny, something you've gone back and listened to, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can send it to me. Uh, my email is Sean at latterdaylives.com. It's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. Send it on over. Any thoughts on the show or anything you wish we would do or do differently or anything at all, it's going to be a a really fun look at the show. So send it over or you can send it to me on our Facebook page or on Instagram. We'd love to read your name and have you be part of the experience. Plus, if you have any questions, that'll be a big part of it. We're going to be answering tons of listener questions. Should be a lot of fun. Before we get into this week's episode, I do want to thank two new reviewers. First of all, on Facebook, uh, Mike Pilkey, who is such a good guy. He's a magician, a really talented guy, and he left such a nice review, and we very much appreciate that on Facebook. And then also on Apple Podcasts, we want to thank Gilbert Scooter for your five-star review. Such kind, kind words, and we really appreciate it. This week in the conversation, Melissa Inouye. I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, behind the scenes on Melissa. She is a scholar and such a brilliant, brilliant soul. She has a new book out and her publicist reached out to me to see if I wanted to talk to Melissa. And I've got to admit, I'm not normally intimidated by interviewing guests. It's just a conversation, right? For whatever reason, I was so intimidated going into this conversation with Melissa. I, I don't know why. I guess because I'm not a scholar. My, my friend Nick Galletti, he interviews scholars all the time, and it's really where he's at home. I'm not. And I was intimidated. But after a few minutes of talking to Melissa, she really put me at ease. Unfortunately, we were up against a time crunch, and I could have talked to her for so much longer. She is an incredible, incredible soul. You're going to love it. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I'll tell you about a friend who brought a little piece of heaven to his corner of the world. It's all coming up, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, what a unique setting we have. We are actually in the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, and my guest is a true scholar. She is an author and a speaker and is here to speak. You're probably the longest distance we've ever had anybody travel. Sweet. <laughs> Not just for the show, but uh, but being here, Melissa Inouye. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, you have a new book out that we're going to talk about, and you're, of course, here speaking 
uh, here at the Institute, and I'm just excited to hear. But let's go way back to your younger life and get to know you a little bit. Well, I grew up in Costa Mesa, California. It's in Orange County. It's um, pretty close to Disneyland. I think I remember going a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and it's a pretty laid back place. It's very beachy. It's a surf town is yeah. Costa Mesa. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. So um, I have four younger brothers and the five of us grew up there. I went to university on the East Coast, and that's where I discovered with shock that I was a Californian. I realized that like <laughs> people on the East Coast are really different from Californians. And yeah. um, that's also where I started to study Chinese language and Chinese literature and history. What, when you were a kid, were you always a scholar? Were you, did you love school? I did love school. Sometimes I was made to do it, so I probably <laughs> didn't love it then. But um, my mother was super engaged, and I remember over the summer vacations, you know, we always had to do some sort of educational thing. Did you love that? Because we do that with our kids, and sometimes they get excited. Other times it's like, oh, come on, really? We're on vacation. Yeah, there was just no choice. So I just accepted it, you know. And so we, we did some fun things. And we had zoo camp where we went to the Santa Ana Zoo and fed the animals. Now, were you raised in the church? I was. So... um my parents met at BYU mm. in the famous BYU Asian ward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that a famous ward? Yes, it's very I didn't famous. go to BYU, so I don't mm. know much about it. Were you like the, the classic beachgoer and all that? Yeah, we had to do this thing in the summer called Junior Lifeguards, mm. where you learn how to swim in the ocean. Yeah, I remember this one really traumatic experience where we had to go on longboards out through really big surf on a day when there's really big waves. Mm. Yeah, I've never really liked longboards since, but I do like to <laughs> boogie board and yeah, body it's surf. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. So you go to the East Coast. Where'd you go to school? I went to Harvard in Boston. Yeah, that's pretty prestigious. Was that intimidating? Um. It's very humbling yeah. where, you know, you've been a relatively smart kid in your high school and then you get to this place with super well-prepared people who read The New Yorker for fun. Yes. <laughs> did, did you know what you wanted to go into when you got to Harvard? Yeah, I thought I wanted to do environmental science and public policy because I had liked wow. biology as a high school student and I like animals and nature and things like that. I got there and I kind of got sucked into... Chinese language, and I just thought it was so interesting. And, um, you know, languages are so cool because they open up whole new worlds. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I ended up doing Chinese literature. Were, now, you mentioned that your parents met in the Asian ward. You have uh, Asian heritage. Are your parents Chinese? So my mom's Chinese, okay. American. Yeah. She's third generation. So her oh, mother awesome. was born in America. Was, do you think that that was part of what sparked wanting to learn Chinese, was your heritage? Kind of, yeah. A, a bit curious. Uh, my dad's Japanese. Oh, okay. Awesome. American. Yeah. So he's also third generation. Wow. See, and I've spent uh, a lot of time in China and a good amount of time in Japan, and I speak Spanish, but the thought of learning one of the Asian languages is so far beyond me, so I admire that. What, what was your experience at Harvard? I really liked it. And one of the most kind of precious experiences to me at Harvard was interaction with the other Latter-day Saints there. There's a very close-knit group of Latter-day Saints at Harvard and um, also some professors who are members of the church, and it's a really great support group. There's so many universities and colleges in mm. Boston in general. So the university ward in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts just brings together all sorts of really fun, interesting, um, committed people. 
Was that a big ward? It's, it's a pretty big ward, yeah. Yeah. So Southern California, there are a lot of members of the church. Was Harvard a pretty big uh, melting pot? Would people come from all over? We were definitely a kind of religious minority. Boston itself does have a lot of pretty old and well-connected Latter-day Saint families. So the rest of your experience, you finished studying there. How long were you at Harvard? So I took two years off to serve a mission in Taiwan. Mm. So I think it was altogether maybe six years, you know, including the time off. Talk about a great way to learn language. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. And um, it was also very influential not just in term, obviously in terms of spiritual and personal development, but I also saw a lot of you know Chinese religion, and that's one of the things that I now study. Yeah, I've been to church in Taiwan a few times. We would walk from our hotel down to where the meeting was. It was in an office building, but we would pass some of the beautiful temples. And one of the things that always touched me was the religious tradition of Taiwan is deep. I mean, that's a deep religious tradition. Did you find that while you were on your mission? Yeah, you know, missionaries aren't often taught a lot about local religion and culture, but um, I did pick up some of it um, in terms of understanding what was going on. When I came back from my mission and started graduate studies, then I appreciated the various aspects of Chinese religious culture. You know, there's not just popular religion, but also, you know, Buddhism and Confucianism and all these different kind of very old, very influential strains of religious culture. So did you love your mission? I did. I think it was a very pivotal time for me because it was a very humbling experience. And I think when we're humbled, then it really opens the pathway to so many different ways to grow. And I don't know if I would have had those opportunities without my mission. So you get done with your mission. Where did that take you? So I came back from my mission. I graduated. Um, I ended up marrying an elder from my mission. I always hasten to say we were never in the same area together. <laughs> we knew each I'm other sure you in get those the questions a lot. We knew each other in the MTC because we both spoke Chinese already. So we um, memorized discussions in the hallway together. It's a pretty small mission. Everyone knew each other pretty well. Sure. So anyway, so upon returning. Um, we ended up dating and getting married. You're not our first guest. To a, you're probably our fifth or sixth, maybe seventh guest to have married someone from their mission. Well, so. I think it is a good way to marry someone because you tend to know like who is hard to live with. <laughs> so you can get background from their exactly their companions. Yeah, so so it was pretty good. But um, the great thing about this particular arrangement is that um, he, you know, speaks Chinese as well, yeah. and a lot of his career has been working with Chinese businesses or working in Hong Kong, even though, for example, for large chunks of our marriage, I was mostly just home with the kids. We were always in a place where I could do my own research. That's awesome. So it's been really helpful. Where did you guys move uh, once you got married? So we got married. um, We came back to BYU for a year so he could finish his math degree. And then we went um, went back to Boston, and I did my graduate work at Harvard for two years, During that time, Joseph was a middle school math teacher. He got really great stories from that period of his time, (laughs) really funny stories. He was like a funny person to talk to at dinner parties because his students were always doing really hilarious things. Oh, that's awesome. What was your graduate work in? It was in Chinese history, basically. I admire Chinese history because it's when you get to China, you realize what a short amount of time the U.S. has been around. Oh, totally. You were moving around quite a bit. 
That's right. Do you still consider California home or where do you consider home? Home is where the stain remover is. (laughs) I need to write that down. That's a good one. Home is where the stain remover is. So you get done with Harvard. Where'd you go next? So after that, my husband started graduate school at UCLA. Then we moved to Los Angeles. And at that point, um, we had just had my first kid. And um, we had ended up having three kids in California, one kid in Hong Kong. So you have four kids, and your kids have the coolest, most beautiful names. I did a little bit of research. Tell us your children's names. Well, those are their nicknames, but um, they're Bean, Sprout, Leaf, and Shoot. Bean, Sprout, Leaf, and Shoot. Okay, so these are nicknames. Yeah. Ah, okay. I had read I had read that they were the, the actual names. Well, we do call them Bean, yeah. Sprout, Leaf, and Shoot. But That's so fantastic. It's not on their birth certificates. Yeah. So you've, you had three kids while you were in California. Mm-hmm. And then uh, where'd you go from California? Then we were in Hong Kong. Uh, my what? husband was working at an international law firm. And um, at that point, I was, you know, full-blown kid mode. And um, we were there for about three years. But the hours for, um, you know, Hong Kong people work super hard, as you know, since you work in Asia. High-powered law firms in Hong Kong are even worse. So at a certain point, we just realized this was not good for our family life. Like, for example, um, every day, in, not nearly every day in Hong Kong, um, at dinner time, I would make dinner. Then I would pack it up into little containers. Mm. Then I'd get the kids onto the bus and we take the bus all the way downtown to Joseph's office building. Then we go up the escalators into the office building. We go meet him in the food court. We'd eat our family dinner in the food court. And then we'd pack up the little containers again. And he would go back to his office. We'd get back on the bus. We'd go back home. And then I put the kids to sleep. Wow. And yeah. you're doing that almost every night. Yeah. So it was a big pain in the neck. And he yeah. was just never free. So it was just very bad for family time is what I'm trying to say. What would you want people to know about the church in Hong Kong? The church in Hong Kong is wonderful for many reasons. One is that um, the temple in Hong Kong is the kind of local temple for so much of that area of Asia, which Mm. is really wonderful. So lots of different people are always coming through. Another wonderful thing about the church in Hong Kong is that it's a place where you realize that some of the kind of rules or um, policies that we have can be very easily bent to accommodate the needs of the saints. So, for mm. example, um, in Hong Kong, the temple is open on some Sundays to accommodate the schedules of Filipino workers who sometimes only have Sundays off. I had read about that. I think that's so cool. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Jesus said, this, you know, we are not for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for us. I was always fascinated going to church in, in Hong Kong at the universality of it, the, you know, you walk through a ward in Hong Kong, you hear French, Spanish, I mean, German, every language. Yeah, Hong Kong's really wonderful that way. A lot of visitors, Mm -hmm. you know. Super accessible. Yeah. And also not a cheap place to live. No, very expensive. The most expensive. So you packed up from Hong Kong. Now you've got four kids. Mm -hmm. And you packed up from Hong Kong. Where'd you go from there? So we left Hong Kong because we wanted a better... family balance. And so then I mm. went on the job market and I was offered a job at the University of Auckland. Yeah. So then um, at that point, Joseph and I switched. So I became the breadwinner and Joseph looked after the kids for about a year and a half. So it was super insulting when my baby, the shoot, um, who was two years old, within about a couple of weeks, he completely switched his parenting preferences. So he used to always, <laughs> you know, always want me, only I would do, but just so fast he only wanted Joseph. Only Joseph would do. And I was just like, that was really fast. I was a little insulted. But That's then I was funny. also kind of relieved. You know, yeah. I was like, ha, ha, ha. 
Only Joseph will too. Go see your father. <laughs> go, go ask dad. Right. I find with my own kids that they come to us for certain things. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. They know they know where I'm a sucker. They know where mm-hmm. my wife's a sucker. Right. Yeah. Good point. How old are your children now? Now they are roughly 13, 11, 9, and 7. Awesome. So cool. And you live in Auckland now? Yes. How do you like New Zealand? I really like it. Very nice, very green because it rains all the time. Yeah. Um, But it's very chilled out, and I really like the University of Auckland where I am. And so at some point in here, a big part of your story is cancer comes into your life. Mm. Talk to us a little bit about that. So um, I won't, I'll spare you all the gory details, but, you know, basically I I felt sick. And um, in April 2017, they diagnosed me with colon cancer. Mm. And so at that point... I, you know, at that time, I think my kids were 11, 9, 7, and 5. And I just thought, they're so young now. You know, what if I die in the next few months or something like that? They'll never know what I think about important issues. Mm. I'll never have a grown-up conversation with them. So then that's what led me to write this book, because I wanted to put everything that I thought was important, basically, into the book. How are you right now, health-wise, with the cancer? I'm actually dealing with what's likely a recurrence. Oh, Melissa, I'm so sorry. That's a lot. I know it's a, um, according to the name of your book, it's a big theme. Your book is called Crossings. Can you, can you tell us just off the top of your head the rest yeah, of the I'll title? Yeah, I'll try. So it's a bald Asian American Latter-day Saint woman's scholars ventures through life, death, cancer, and motherhood, not necessarily in that order. It's such a great name for the book. You know, last night I decided I was going to try to memorize it before this uh, before this conversation. <laughs> I don't even try. And then I gave up yeah, on it. Yeah, it's but impossible. it's so awesome. And so it starts off, a bald Asian-American Latter-day Saint woman. Did you shave your head before or was this part of the cancer? No, it's not chemo. It's, um, it's just my hair fell out, I think, when I was 29. Yeah. So I've looked like this for like 11 years or something like that. I think it's awesome. I think it's really, really cool. It's like the Toyota of hairstyles. (laughs) How's that? It's just super easy to maintain. (laughs) That's very comfortable in the summer. I think it's a really cool look. Though you do get sunburned. Yeah. So got to wear a hat. I think it's a great look. So so one of the other themes that, um, at least what's been written about you, is that you are a feminist and you bring themes of feminism with the church. There are people who get nervous about that. Right, right, right. Talk a little bit about that and about your perspective on uh, on the role of feminism in the church. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, the church has, a, compared to from the inception of the church, we have had a very powerful theology of women's spiritual authority. So, for example, you know, with the founding of the Release Society as an organization that according to the minutes that was kept at that time, an organization in the, after the order of the priesthood. I'm actually not sure what the right preposition was. It was after the order of the priesthood, in the order of the priesthood. Anyway, mm-hmm. some sort of organization where Joseph Smith organized right. the Relief Society with the presidency. Um, if you look at the Relief Society mis- minutes, you know, Emma Smith, you know, they, we, they referred to her as President Emma Smith. So sometimes they talk about President Smith and President Smith, meaning President Joseph Smith, President mm-hmm. Emma Smith. Um, you know, we know that... Um, from the very beginning, we've had a doctrine of a mother in heaven that's been mm-hmm. taught in our popular culture as well. The gospel itself, you know, makes these broad avenues for 
men and women to flourish. I think that feminism used to be a word that would make people tense. But, you know, nowadays when you look at kids and their little girls are, you know, on soccer teams and they're doing cool things, no one wants little girls to not think that they're strong and powerful, right? right. We, we want them to, like, have a sense of their power. We don't want them to, to you know, to, to put up with um, domestic abuse. We don't want them to to quail before people just because those people have a different gender, you know? So it seems pretty logical at yeah. this point that um, feminism to me just means that um, recognizing the power of men and women and not trying to, you know, suppress anyone's power. I love that. Why, why do you think it makes people nervous to talk about, to talk about feminism? Well, I think in the past, um, politically, it meant a specific kind of, platform. Yeah. But now it seems so much broader. So for example, even in in Utah Valley, um, there's this organization of Latter-day Saint women, mostly Latter-day Saint women called Big Ocean Women. Mm. Um, And their tagline or their kind of brand is maternal feminism. Um, I love that. They like to focus on women's kind of biological reproductive power. And, um, And they've claimed this label feminism for themselves too. So yeah. I think it's a lot more broad. I love is what I'm that. Saying. I like the idea of taking words like feminism and reclaiming them, mm-hmm. and owning them, mm-hmm. and making them what what we are. Another area that you speak on quite a bit, from what I can, uh, from what I've seen in in the YouTube videos and whatnot, is you speak in a lot of uh, seemingly interfaith um, settings where you're speaking to people of other faiths. What do you what do you share uh, when you're speaking to people of other faiths? So. For example, a couple of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, I gave a talk at the University of Auckland called Why Religion? It was like a a forum, and the question was, why religion, mm. you know, in the 21st century? And so in that um, talk, which was not for a Latter-day Saint audience, it was for a kind of half-secular, half-Christian, half-Muslim. Okay, I've gotten over my halves now. <laughs> anyway, you know, it was a mixed audience. Sure. Um, and I said... You know, I, I'm an academic. Um, so much of what I do in my day-to-day job is about finding rational evidence. You know, if the students write a paper that's not based in something that's evidence that can be verified by everyone, then it's not okay. At the same time, um, I'm a religious person. And this particular one, I said, I'm not even like a mildly religious person. I'm like a super-duper religious person. I'm a <laughs> Latter-day Saint. And... You know, there's just a different way of knowing and finding truth in in that different space. And my point was that um, both spaces can kind of coexist in the same person because both kinds of knowledge are, are good for different things. Um, some people think that there is contradiction, that you have to choose between truth and knowledge. Where do you see that balance? Well, one thing that I noticed, even as a young scholar, I became a much better student when I came back from my mission. Mm. And I think it was because I was more convinced that there was a kind of fixed or at least um, universally accessible thing as truth. So, for example, before my mission, um, I would take like a moral reasoning class. And this class was specifically set up to provide all these different points of view that would kind of critique and undermine each other. And I found that in each week, as we read a different famous philosopher, I would just be completely converted by that philosopher's 
argument, <laughs> even when they were set up to completely contradict each other. So I was just seesawing back and forth. I, I, that sounds pretty smart. And the next week I'd be like, oh, you're, that must be right. And then, you know, and so on. But after my mission, um, for some reason, I became a lot more able to think about things critically. Mm. And to say, well, that argument doesn't work for this reason, and this argument doesn't work for that reason. Um, which some people might think is like the opposite of what's supposed to happen on a mission. Like some people might think, you know, on missions you become brainwashed and you just like, you're just like this religious robot. And, <laughs> you know, but that was the opposite of that was true for me. And as in my own work on religion, I study religion as well. Mm -hmm. um, I have found at times that um, my identity as a religious person helps me to empathize with my subjects and to to see what maybe other people might miss who just kind of view things in a strictly secular way. When you are out in the broader academic community, do you find that when people find out that you're a member of the church, that it changes their perception of you? Yes, yeah, sometimes. Um, once I was at a conference and I was talking to someone, um, and it was pretty clear just from talking to them that he was the kind of person who wouldn't really like Latter-day Saints. But it came up. Um, and, and he's like, oh, so how did you learn your Chinese? And I said, oh, um, I was a Mormon missionary in Taiwan. And he said, oh, oh. <laughs> and, but like, you know, you can get through that. You, know, you don't stop being the person you were. So I just kept on talking and, you know, he's like a, a friend. But um, yeah, sometimes people have a strong reaction. Actually, sometimes I, I, ask, I ask that specifically. When it comes up, you know, they'll say, you know, so, so what do you, do you have a religious belief? And I'll say, oh, yeah, well, I'm a... I used to say I'm a Mormon, um, <laughs> but but you know if you identify your religious belief, and sometimes I'll say, do you like have strong feelings about that? Just as a kind of way to like bring it out into the open, because sometimes there's like an awkward silence. Yeah, you know? but, but I just want people to feel okay having strong feelings about it too, because you know I, some people are frightened of us. So, do you find that you have more credibility being a scholar? Do people tend to listen to you more? I would. <laughs> Um, oh, you mean like as a Latter-day Saint yeah, as a scholar? Yeah, as a Latter-day Saint. Like I'm sure, you know, I mean, you're with, I'm just so impressed with your studies of religion and of Chinese and all these other things. And you're an author and a speaker. I mean, I would, I would think that a lot of people would turn to you with questions about the church. Not that many, actually. Hmm. Mm. But um, I feel like it's a way to you know, do missionary work without planting your feet in someone in front of someone and, you know, yeah. testifying. It's a sure. way to just kind of be known for who you are. And um, if people know who you are, then they'll kind of pay attention to you and see, oh, that's what, you know, Latter-day Saints do. And oh, that view can be a Latter-day Saint view and so on. So now you're touring, promoting the book as well. When is the book out right now? It's officially out on Amazon now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And on audiobook. Oh, fantastic. Did yeah. you do the reading of it? I did, yeah. I really oh. like the audiobook, actually, because yeah. it's, got, um, it's got songs and it's got uh, a really awesome poem that was written by 12 women from my ward in Los Angeles that is now read by 12 women from my ward in Auckland. Oh, and no they have kidding. like different accents and they sound so smart and wise, you know, because they're like British accents. That's so. really cool. Yeah. And again, the book is called Crossings, and you're now doing some touring. I mean, you're here speaking. You're going to be speaking here at the, uh, the Institute. What, what themes do you speak on? Are you telling your story from the book? Well, today I'm talking about 
uh, struggling with things that are hard. I think sometimes um, in the church we tend to shrink from conversations about things that are hard because we're afraid that it will be a deal breaker, it will ruin our vision of the truthfulness of the gospel or something like that. My argument is yeah. that um, you know contradictions and struggle are part of life. They're an integral part of reality. So when those things show up in something, doesn't mean that thing's illegitimate. It means that thing is real and substantial, and we can work through them. Do you feel like people sometimes worry about talking about this stuff because of their own insecurities, that maybe I'll uncover something that I don't like? Yes, and I, I felt that myself for so long, actually. So I completely understand that feeling. Yeah. I think ultimately our faith does become stronger the more we know, as opposed to you know just being afraid of something that we think is out there. Mm. The stuff that, for example, in the Gospel Topics essays is very complex, mm-hmm. but it's quite accessible. And um, what those things say, you know, are based in, you know, evidence. So if things actually happen, there's no harm in knowing what actually happened. Yeah. It doesn't make the whole project go kapooey. It's, <laughs> you know, it's just all human histories are complicated yeah. and messy. When people run into stumbling blocks, they find something that they don't really understand or that doesn't make sense. What advice do you have for them? Um, I would say to look carefully for good information. There's good information and bad information on the internet. If you go to the Gospel Topics essays, there are footnotes. So you can always go to the next level of information past that. There's plenty of stuff out there. The most important thing, I think, is not, you know, there's not like a specific answer to someone's doubt-producing question that fixes everything. But what I think is important to understand is that the more we learn about anything, the more complex we find it is. Mm. It's just just the nature of things. And all religious histories are complicated, and they have good bits and they have bad bits. So they shouldn't be surprised when they find things that make them feel uncomfortable because they've never seen them before. It's always uncomfortable to find stuff that you've never seen before. But um, I've seen a lot of stuff, and I'm still here. So I think it's, I don't think that, you know, learning more things is necessarily a deal breaker. I'm going to say that it strengthens my testimony meeting you. I mean, it's, I think it's really cool that you've done so much studying, you've done so much traveling, and just your background and history, and that you are here. I think that sometimes we get a, even of ourselves, we get a perception of what a member of the church should be hmm. and what we are. And especially, I would say, in Utah, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a homogenous view. And I think if we're truly going to be the global church, we need to be the global church. Right. We need to open our arms, open our doors, open our minds, and open our hearts to everyone. And I think that your message is just awesome. So the book is out officially. Um, what is, uh, what's next for you? Probably cancer treatments. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll get another book out of it. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I think I'm done writing about <laughs> these things. And I, I, would, I would recommend now, having met you, I'm recommending to our audience, I think the book, if you're a reader, buy the book. But knowing that you're the one who read it, just hearing your intonations, I, I want to hear the audio book because I feel like it'll oh. get, people can get to know you through that as well. So, And that's available through Audible? It's available through Deseret Book. You through have Deseret to get book. it from okay, that's their good to know. app. Okay, so through the Deseret Book, 
which I think their app is called Bookshelf, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Something like that. So yeah. we can get the uh, the audiobook there, and then uh, I think that's just awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. If there's before I ask you the final question, I'd ask you just if you've got one. This is the Melissa in a way. This is the message that you want people to know. What's kind of in your heart? What's your main main message to people? Or is it just so diverse? Well, it is a kind of random book, which has many different messages. But um, one thing that I think is a a good thing to a good kind of paradigm shift, which I think will be really healthy for the church. In the book, there's an essay called "The Problem We Want to Have," and the problem we want to have in the church is change. Mm. Change is a good problem to have because it's the problem that any religious tradition has as it lasts over time and grows over space. Mm. And I think sometimes we're a bit afraid of change. If someone says, you know, something needs to change, then we go, nothing needs to change. But, um, (laughs) you know, I think the presidency of um, Russell M. Nelson has shown that change can be, um, change is not off the table. Change can be in order. Change can, you know, can really transform our ways of worshiping or, um, you know, communing with God. And so I, so I think change, if you, if you look at history of all religious movements and even the history of the church, like in this essay in the book, you see that change is always ongoing. And so at this time when so many things are in flux and where we're working so hard to retain the next generation of young people, I think that change is something that we should embrace. And we kind of take the cue from our leaders and, um, and run in the directions there nudging us. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Melissa, you are fascinating. I just, I have a million more questions I could ask you. I love your point of view. Uh, but we got to wrap up because of time, because also you have other stuff coming up. So uh, we're going to finish off with the question we ask all of our guests. And that is for you, Melissa, what does being a member of the church mean to you? To me, it means that I'm a member of a global fellowship of sisters and brothers and I have made covenants to them. Um, at baptism, you know, if you read in Mosiah, we make a covenant to bear one another's mm-hmm. burdens, to be one people, to be Christ's people. And um, that burden is is a huge burden. But um, I think if we all take it up, then, then it becomes light. And that connection that I have um, through the covenants of my fellow Latter-day Saints is sacred and it's precious. And in very many ways, it has made me who I am, and in some ways, even preserved my life. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, we certainly uh, wish you all the best in all of your future endeavors. The book is called Crossings, A Bald Asian American Latter-day Saint uh, Woman Scholars Ventures Through Life, Death, Cancer, and Motherhood, and my favorite part of this parenthesis not necessarily in that order. She is definitely a scholar, an author, a speaker, a mother, a wife, and a just phenomenal Latter-day Saint. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And my special thanks to Melissa Inouye. What a wonderful person. Isn't she just brilliant and so talented? Just an incredible soul. As a little bit of a, an epilogue to the episode, Melissa's cancer 
has come back, as she mentioned, toward the end of the episode. And again, we were up against a time crunch. I really wanted to sit and spend some time talking about what that experience has been, but we just, we really did not have a lot of time to sit and talk. But uh, she is going back through it. She had just found out not long before we talked. Uh, we recorded actually a few weeks ago. And, uh, but we did get a status update from her. Uh, someone had set up a page to help her pay for the expenses. In fact, I'm going to share that on our Facebook page. Uh, some very generous people have donated and they actually reached their goals uh, for donations in six days. But for those who still want to help out, we will share that page on our Facebook page. But as an update, she is battling and she is fighting, and I'm sure she could use all of our prayers and our support. This week in my Latter-day Life, I uh, got a cool cool message from a friend of mine. Uh, Jason Bringhurst has been a guest on the show. He's also the author of uh, Rocky Mountain Sunshine, the blog, which is fantastic. If you're not reading it, you should be. He also happens to be one of my closest friends. We were business partners for many years, and he is just an all-around good guy. And he listened to the episode with Mitch Davis uh, talking about the other side of heaven. And Jason recently moved to Port Angeles, Washington. So he moved from, from Utah County out to Port Angeles. Port Angeles is a few hours away from Seattle. It's a little bit uh, out there. Beautiful, beautiful area. But that's where he lives with his family. And unfortunately, the other side of heaven wasn't playing anywhere near where he lived. It was He was going to have to drive several hours to go see it. And he was so excited uh, after hearing Mitch talk about it and so felt so inspired, he went to his local movie theater to ask if they would bring it in. And the theater said they the only way they would bring it in is if he rented out the entire theater. He would have to pay for every single seat. And then they would bring it in. And Jason, being just the awesome guy he is, said, you bet. Let's do it. He paid to rent out an entire theater. This was very Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. Because Jason then went out and he announced to, to the people in his ward, and he had the local uh, bishops, there are a few wards out there, and the bishops all announced that, hey, this was going to be happening. It was not an official church event. But if people wanted to see this, then they were going to get to see this movie in their local movie theater. And wouldn't you know it, it sold out completely. In fact, there were some people that didn't even get in because every single ticket in the area sold out. And I got to talk to Jason the day after the event, and he was still just beaming. The experience was even more touching because he made it happen. He brought goodness to his area. And we got messages from several uh, several of you saying that you were either driving three or four hours or you were doing, some of you were taking carpools to go see this movie. Our friend Annette Smith, uh, she found a theater not far from her, or I guess pretty far from her, but she was able to go. It's just really neat uh, what people have done to go and to see this movie and support it. But I think what Jason did talk about going the extra mile and showing his faith. I think it's easy for us sometimes to sit back. I know it is for me uh, to say, ah, something's too hard. It's too far away. It's too difficult. It's too much work. Shoot, that would be nice. 
And yet there are people like Jason in the world who go out and say, instead of uh, making excuses, we're just going to make it happen. I think we can all bring that little bit of heaven to our neighborhoods if we'll just have the faith and put in that work. And I'm just grateful for Jason's friendship and his ongoing example. That's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Again, we would love to hear from you for our 100th episode, either Facebook. I can be reached uh, on email at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. Also on Instagram or Twitter. Again, we'd love to hear your favorite guest, your favorite experience. Do you have questions about the show, how it all works? questions about any of our guests, we might be able to reach out to them. We would just love to hear from you and we will read your name uh, on the show. Again, we appreciate your reviews. If you get a chance to leave us a five-star review, either on Facebook or on um, Apple Podcasts, especially, that's where it helps us the most. We would certainly appreciate it. And so until next week, when we got another fun show for you, please remember, as always, There is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. 